Christchurch, New Malden. Sunday the 21st of November 2021, 11 o'clock service. Stephen Kurt speaking on Some Fresh Thoughts on Holy Communion. Okay, well, memory is something that is really important, isn't it? I think every single one of us have special things about our lives, special times, special events, special people that we want to keep special in our memories. And there are various things that happen to trigger memory, aren't there? Some of those things are deliberate and some of them just happen. So we tend to deliberately keep things like photographs, objects, or things perhaps that people have written in order to preserve those memories. But all of us, I think, will probably have those experiences as well where things that we don't intend to happen nonetheless trigger memory. All of us probably have those times in our lives when something that we see or something that we hear, something perhaps that we taste or touch or smell, will immediately trigger off memories in our brain. Sight, hearing, touch, taste and smell, they're known as the five senses, aren't they? And teachers amongst us, and there will be some or ex-teachers here this morning, teachers will know that a multi-sensory approach to education, an approach which involves as many of those senses as possible, is one that very often produces the best learning. And that's our way in this morning to understanding a bit more, thinking afresh about Holy Communion. And it's because Holy Communion is all about memory. In that passage that I read a few moments ago, we heard about Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, gathering his disciples, or learners, that's what disciple means, together, taking bread and wine. He speaks of that bread and wine representing his body and blood. He shares it with them, and then he tells them to go on doing that in remembrance, he says, of me. Last week in this church was Remembrance Sunday, wasn't it? When we remembered victims of warfare. But Holy Communion is all about remembering that central event of Christianity when Jesus died. And by remembering it, bringing its significance afresh into the present reality of our lives. When people celebrate a wedding anniversary, and here is a picture on the left of me with uh, my son, daughters, and Katie, and uh, the boyfriends, one of whom is now a fiancé, uh, celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary. Actually, and I wonder in the picture, how many of you think that uh, I've aged better than Katie since that picture was taken? Put up your hand if you think I'm the one who's aged the best. Put up your hand if you think Katie's aged the best out of the two of us. Yeah. At 9.30, there was a genuine vote. People could put their hands up. And most people voted that Katie has aged a lot better than I have. But basically, when you celebrate a wedding anniversary, very often with a meal, it's not just about the past, it's about the present and the future as well, isn't it? The past of that wedding is remembered. Why? Well, it's part of strengthening and celebrating that marriage in the present, isn't it? And it's about guiding and directing that marriage for the future. So a wedding anniversary meal, it's about past, it's about present, it's about future, and it's precisely the same with Holy Communion. And we understand Holy Communion much better when we understand its foundation in the Old Testament story. 
If the most important event in the New Testament is the death and resurrection of Jesus, then the most important event in the Old Testament is the Exodus, or the escape from Egypt. And you'll know the story probably very well. The Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They were being oppressed by the Pharaoh, and God rescued them, didn't he? He rescued them by bringing, as that picture shows, them through the Red Sea. Then he made them his people, and he guided and directed them through the desert on their way to the land that he had promised them. And early on in that story, we're told that God revealed the way that he wanted the Israelites to remember that event, that supremely important event of the Exodus, and he wanted to remember it through a meal, through the Passover. Passover got its name from that part of the story where the Israelites put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Why did they do that? So that the angel of death would pass over their houses and only affect the Egyptians. But within that Passover meal that God instituted through Moses, partly through hearing the story again, but also through seeing, touching, tasting, and even smelling the things associated with it, the Jews were, and still are, able to remember that foundational act of rescue by God that made them into his people. And just like a wedding anniversary meal, the Passover looked back in order to strengthen that relationship in the present and to guide its future. And for Jews, that future reference of Passover has always been really important. Because at the most terrible, the most dreadful times in their history, and there's been plenty, the Passover has proclaimed to Jews that what God did once in rescuing them from Egypt, he will therefore do again in the future when he fulfills all of the promises that he's made to his people. Now, Jesus was a Jew, wasn't he? And that's why, like other Jews, he would travel once a year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And it was always a very anxious time for the Romans occupying Judea because they were concerned that trouble was very possible. Why? Because Passover was a festival of liberation. People were celebrating this past rescue, and as I say, it had massive implications for the present and future as well. So Passover was a very fraught time. The Roman governor would tend to come up from Caesarea, his base, to be in Jerusalem that week. That's why Pontius Pilate was in Jerusalem during that final Passover. And that final Passover for Jesus was very different. The final time that Jesus travelled from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem for the Passover was different because Jesus had come to realise that God was calling him to be the means of an even greater rescue. The Exodus had rescued the Israelites from Egypt and the evil of Pharaoh's oppression, but now Jesus realised it was time for the whole world to be rescued from the oppression of evil itself. The evil that can't simply be located within certain bad people, the evil that actually, if truth be told, runs through every single one of us. Jesus' death was the moment when the fullness of God's love came face to face with evil in its worst form. And because God's love came face to face with that evil, it defeated it. And that's why we have Jesus' subsequent resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a mighty demonstration of that victory. It wouldn't have been able to happen if evil was still in charge, but evil had been defeated by God's love. 
And it demonstrated that, and it also demonstrated the future that those who belong to Jesus can possess because of him. And all of this is so important that Jesus, understandably, wants us to remember it. And he wants the memory of it to go on shaping and changing our lives, which is why he gave us this multi-sensory gift, sometimes called Holy Communion. That's not the only name for it. Other churches will call it the Eucharist, which means the Thanksgiving. Other churches will call it the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholics call it the Mass, for reasons I'll refer to later. But the idea is, in its most important parts, the same. That by hearing, seeing, touching, tasting and smelling, we remember in a really powerful and transforming way what Jesus did for every single one of us. We remember who we are because of what Jesus did for us. And we therefore remember more about how we're meant to live in response because of what Jesus did for us. And in the light of this, I want to suggest five things that the Bible says that we should be doing when we receive Holy Communion. Five things that we should try and bear in mind when we know we're going to be receiving Communion on the first and third Sundays of the month here at this 11 o'clock service. And the first of these things is that we're meant to look back. This is the most obvious one, but it's still important to think about. Christianity isn't primarily a set of ideas. It's about a historical event. 2,000 years ago, when God's love dramatically and decisively broke into this world through his son, Jesus Christ. And that love, as I've already said, was revealed to its strongest degree possible when Jesus died, which is why it was strong enough to break the power of evil over this world. And Holy Communion, particularly at those moments when we hear the story of Jesus' death and we see the bread being broken and the wine being poured out, that symbolically represents that unique act of self-giving love that Jesus went through for us. Love, genuine love, when we encounter it, is transforming, isn't it? Love changes people's lives. And Holy Communion is given so that we can look back and remember in a way that really grasps our hearts and our minds, our imaginations, every part of us, the incredible love of God performed in Jesus Christ for every single one of us. And these words in the communion liturgy that I'll be saying uh, fairly soon are very powerful. Draw near with faith, the communion liturgy says. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you, and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you, and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. They're really powerful words, aren't they? The older I get, the more meaningful they become. That's often the way with liturgy, actually. St. Paul's equivalent, and one of his most moving statements, is where he talks in Galatians 2.20 about living by faith in the Son of God who loved me, he said, and gave his life for me. Incredibly personal and powerful words. And Holy Communion is given so that we can look back in a similar way 
and be transformed, further transformed, by further recognising the depth of God's love for every single one of us. So looking back, perhaps the most obvious part of communion, but there are four other crucial bits I suggest as well. And another is to look forward. Now this is uh, a less obvious part of Holy Communion, but nonetheless vital. Paul quotes those words of Jesus about doing uh, this in remembrance of him, but then he goes on to say this, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Paul says, until he comes. And Jesus himself, in Luke's account of the Last Supper, says this, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Holy Communion, as well as looking back, has this vital forward-looking dimension as well. And this makes much greater sense when we remember that the goal of the Bible is new creation. There's a verse that occurs a couple of times in the Old Testament that sums this up wonderfully when it speaks of a day when the whole world will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day the whole world will be filled with God's presence. And according to the New Testament, both the risen Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the first fruits of that new creation. And when, therefore, we receive the bread and the wine that represent the risen Jesus, the Holy Spirit is giving us a foretaste of that new creation that God has promised us. And just like in the story of the Exodus, the Israelites were sustained by heavenly food. Do you remember the story? They were sustained by manna from heaven and quail when they were going through the desert on their way to the promised land. So Holy Communion is similar. It's supernatural food and drink, in one sense just ordinary bread and wine, but filled with God's special presence by the power of his Spirit to sustain and nourish us on the way to the new creation that God has promised us. So looking back, looking forward, but as well as these, another important part of Holy Communion is to look inward. This was a particular emphasis of that passage that I read earlier, where Paul uh, speaks to the Corinthians in quite a stern way, doesn't he? Christianity rests on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Christianity rests upon his grace rather than anything that we can do. But it's also true that repentance, being determined to turn from our sin and allow God's Holy Spirit to shape and change us, is a vital part of receiving that grace. And that's why an important part of Holy Communion is confession. Confession and the encouragement that we're given to examine our hearts and see what needs to change to make sure that we're in a right relationship with God. Now, confession in Protestant Christianity tends to be a private thing. That's got strengths and it's got weaknesses. The great strength is it shows us that we can go directly to God. We don't need a a mediator. Jesus has already performed that. That's the great strength of the Protestant sort of emphasis on confession. But the weakness of never confessing our sins to anyone else is that we can sometimes be letting ourselves off the hook rather than genuinely confessing our sins to God. And that's why it's sometimes good and powerful to make our confession just to another Christian that we trust doesn't have to be a member of clergy. It can just be another believer in Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes doing our confession to someone that we trust, to another Christian, is a way of genuinely making sure that that is confession to God. And that there's nothing in the way of renewing our relationship with God through the gift of Holy Communion that Jesus gave us to remember what he did for us. That's closely linked, and particularly in that passage earlier, its application is to the next thing that I want to talk about, which is the call to look around when we receive communion. You see, when St. Paul in that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about people examining themselves before they take communion, the major thing that he's actually talking about is their relationships with others in the church. We've got a picture here of what the church and its relationships should look like. All these different people, different ages, different races, all together. One of the big problems in the church at Corinth were the divisions in it between rich and poor. And Paul is emphatic that if people receive the bread and the wine without being bothered about the unity of the body of Christ, they are, he says, eating and drinking judgment upon themselves. You see, Holy Communion isn't just powerful in a positive sense. If it's taken in the wrong spirit, it can just be just as powerful in a negative sense as well. It's something that we're given not just to bind us closer to Jesus, but to bind us closer to one another as well. That corporate sense is a vital part of the spirit in which communion needs to be received. It's not just about privately making sure our heart's in the right place before God. We've got to make sure that we are right as a community together. And finally, when we receive Holy Communion, we're also meant to look outward. You see, the whole point of God calling us to be part of his family, the whole reason why the church exists is to be, as I was preaching about a few weeks ago, to be Christ's ambassadors, to be his missionaries to the rest of the world, to spread God's love outside the church. And the whole reason why God nourishes us through the gift of Holy Communion is to equip us for that task. Paul says in his letter to the Christians at Ephesus that the Christian struggle is a spiritual one. And he says these words, our struggle, it shouldn't say out struggle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul interprets the Christian struggle as a spiritual one. And it would be pretty unequal and pretty unfair if we were called to battle spiritual forces just in our own strength. That would be pretty unfair, wouldn't it? Well, it's not intended to be that way. Holy Communion is there to equip us for the task. Roman Catholics call communion the Mass because the last line of its Latin liturgy is ita missa est, which those of you who know your Latin from school, and I reckon most people here did Latin at the school, they phased it out now, which is a bit of a shame. I was one of the last lot to do Latin. It speaks of the church being sent out by God into the world. And that's why the service that we have here, the Church of England service, ends in a similar way, with go in peace, to love and serve the Lord. That's an inspiring commission, isn't it, that we're given at the end of the communion service. Why? Because we must never forget 
that every blessing that God gives us, including Holy Communion, is intended for that purpose of us passing on God's blessing to others. So Holy Communion, something that most of us here are very familiar with, something that we'll be celebrating together again shortly, but something that we actually need to constantly think afresh about. It is a wonderful, multi-sensory gift intended to help us remember the most important thing that ever has happened in history and the most important thing as well that's ever happened in our lives. God sending his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And we do that remembering best when we look back to the unique event when Jesus died for each one of us, when we look forward to that future day when God brings his new creation in its entirety, when we look inward, making sure that we really do confess our sins to God, when we look around to make sure that we're honouring the body of Christ that is the church, and when we look outward as well. Because God's gift of Holy Communion is all about equipping us to go in peace, to love and serve the Lord. Amen.